Hoping to solve intricate problems of war and peace, President Roosevelt reaches the Yalta meeting, accompanied by his daughter, Mrs. Anna Boniker. These are Army Signal Corps pictures of an historic world meeting that will shape the destiny of future generations. Joseph Stalin made promises during World War II about the freedom of Eastern Europe, on which he blatantly reneged. At the Yalta Conference in February 1945, six months before the atomic bombing of Japan, the USSR pledged to enter the war against Japan no later than three months after the conclusion of the European War. In return, the United States awarded the Soviets territorial concessions from Japan and special rights in Chinese Manchuria. When the Soviet Union entered the war between the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the United States no longer needed their aid. But Stalin was there to collect on Western promises. All of these factors contributed to a climate of mistrust that heightened tensions at the outbreak of a new global conflict, a conflict that would last 45 years longer than the Second World War, the Cold War. The actual meetings were held in the Lavadia Palace, two and a half miles outside Yalta, a former residence of the Tsars. Welcome to another edition of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in this episode of The Cold War, we'll look at how the United States, once set on returning to isolationism after World War II, instead found itself at the center of the free market capitalist world in direct conflict with the expanding communism of Europe, Asia, and Latin America. The long-term causes of the Cold War are somewhat muddy for historians. Western democracies had always been hostile to the idea of a communist state. The United States had refused recognition of the USSR for 16 years after the Bolshevik takeover. Domestic fears of communism erupted in a first Red Scare in America in the early 1920s. American business leaders had long feared the consequences of a politically driven workers' organization. World War II provided short-term causes as well. Aboard the cruiser Augusta, President Harry S. Truman ends an eight-day Atlantic crossing at the restored great port of Antwerp, Belgium. First stage of his mission to Berlin. At the Potsdam Conference, the Allies agreed on the post-war outcome for Nazi Germany. After territorial adjustments, Germany was divided into four occupation zones, with the United States, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union each administering one. Germany was to be democratized and denazified. Once the Nazi leaders were arrested and the war crimes tribunals began in Nuremberg, a date would be agreed upon for the election of a new German government and the withdrawal of Allied troops. Mr. Truman leaves his ship to set foot on European soil. Driven to Brussels airport, President Truman takes up his trip by air. He boards the presidential plane for the flight direct to Berlin and the three-power conference with Generalissimo Stalin and Prime Minister Churchill. This process was executed in the zones held by the Western Allies. 
In the Eastern Soviet occupation zone, a puppet communist regime was elected. There was no promise of repatriation with the West. Soon, such governments, aided by the Soviet Red Army, came to power all across Eastern Europe. Stalin was determined to create a buffer zone to prevent any future invasion of the Russian heartland. Winston Churchill remarked in 1946, just a year after the Second World War, that an Iron Curtain had descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. When the Red Army marched on Germany, it quickly absorbed the nearby nations of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania into the Soviet Union. Soon, communist forces dominated the governments of Romania and Bulgaria, and by the fall of 1945, it was clear that the Soviets had complete control of Poland, violating the Yalta promise of a free and unfettered election there. It was only a matter of time before Hungary and Czechoslovakia fell into the Soviet orbit. President Truman was determined to reverse this trend. It is necessary only to glance at a map to realize that the survival and integrity of the Greek nation are of grave importance in a much wider situation. It came down to Greece and Turkey. They were the first nations spiraling into crisis that had not been directly occupied by the Soviet army. Both countries were on the verge of being taken over by Soviet-backed guerrilla movements. Truman decided to draw a line in the sand. In March of 1947, he asked Congress to appropriate $400 million to send to these two nations in the form of military and economic assistance. Within two years, the communist threat had passed, and both nations were comfortably in the Western sphere of influence. In mountainous Pindus country on the Greek-Albanian border, we spotlight the war which has raged unchecked since the rest of Europe went back to peace. Here, Greek army troops move up to attack a stronghold of guerrilla invaders. It was here in the heights... A mid-level diplomat in the State Department named George Kennan proposed the policy of containment. Since the American people were weary from war and had no desire to send United States troops back to Eastern Europe, rolling back the gains of the Red Army would have been impossible. But in places where communism threatened to expand, American aid might prevent a takeover. We know the red we want is the red we've got in the old red, white, and blue. By vigorously pursuing this policy, the United States might be able to contain communism within its current borders. This policy became known as the Truman Doctrine. As the president outlined these intentions with his request for monetary aid for Greece and Turkey, 
However, in the aftermath of World War II, Western Europe lay devastated. The war had ruined crop fields and destroyed infrastructure, leaving most of Western Europe in dire need. On June 5th of 1947, Secretary of State George Marshall announced a new European recovery program. We have given much aid to the impoverished peoples of Europe on simple humanitarian grounds. But as a countermeasure against the attempt by the Soviet Union to communize Europe, the American people saw the necessity for cooperating with the non-communist countries in a comprehensive bipartisan European recovery program. Now, to avoid antagonizing the Soviet Union, Marshall announced that the purpose of sending aid to Western Europe was completely humanitarian and even offered aid to the communist states in the East. Congress approved Truman's request of $17 billion over four years to be sent to Great Britain, France, West Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Belgium. The only red we want is the red we've got in the old red, white, and blue. The Marshall Plan, it was called, created an economic miracle in Western Europe. By the target date of the program, four years later, Western European industries were producing twice as much as they had been the year before war had broken out. Some Americans grumbled about the costs, but the nation spent more on liquor during the years of the Marshall Plan than they had sent overseas to Europe. The aid also produced record levels of trade with American firms, fueling a post-war economic boom in the United States. Lastly, and much to Truman's delight, none of these nations of Western Europe faced a serious threat of a communist takeover for the duration of the Cold War. The city of Berlin. Germany's wartime capital was the prickliest of all issues that separated the United States and the Soviet Union during the late 1940s. The city was divided into four zones of occupation, much like the rest of Germany, however. The entire city lay within the Soviet occupation zone. Now, once the nation of East Germany was established, the Allied sections of the capital known as West Berlin became an island of democracy and capitalism behind the Iron Curtain. In June 1948, tensions within Berlin touched off a crisis. The Soviets decided to seal all land routes going into West Berlin. Stalin gambled that the Western powers were not willing to risk another war to protect half of Berlin. The Allies were tired, and their populations were unlikely to support a new war. A withdrawal by the United States, however, would eliminate this democratic enclave in the Soviet zone. Truman was faced with tough choices. Relinquishing Berlin to the Soviets would seriously undermine the new doctrine of containment. Any negotiated settlement would suggest that the USSR could engineer a crisis at any time to exact concessions. If Berlin, however, were compromised, the whole of West Germany might question the American commitment to German democracy. To Harry Truman, there was no question. He said, quote, we are going to stay in Berlin, period. Together with Britain, the United States began moving massive amounts of food and supplies into West Berlin by the only path still open, the air. 
Stalin miscalculated when he estimated the strength of Western unity. To cement the cooperation that the Western allies had shown during the war and immediate post-war years, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, known as NATO, was created in April 1949. The pact operated on the basis of collective security. If any of the member states were attacked, all would retaliate together. To counter this, the Eastern Allies formed the Warsaw Pact. NATO was the very sort of permanent alliance that George Washington warned against in his farewell address centuries earlier and represented the first such agreement since the Franco-American alliance that helped secure victory in the American Revolution. The United States formally shed its isolationist past and thrust itself forward as a determined superpower fighting its new rival, the Soviet Union. Oh, I'm just wild about Harry. Harry's wild about me. Meanwhile, back home in the United States, the sign on Harry Truman's desk read, The Buck Stops Here. By buck, he meant responsibility, and the bucks ran amok on his desk. The end of World War II brought a series of challenges to Truman. The entire economy had to be converted from a wartime economy back to a consumer economy. To provide relief for the veterans of World War II, and to diminish the labor surplus, Congress passed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944. Known as the GI Bill of Rights, this new law granted government loans to veterans who wished to start a new business or build a home. It even provided money for veterans to attend school or college. I'm just wild about Harry. Harry's wild about me. Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which allowed the president to declare a cooling-off period if a labor strike were to erupt. Union leaders became liable for damages in lawsuits and were required to sign non-communist oaths. The ability of unions to contribute to political campaigns was also limited. Truman vetoed this measure, but it was passed by Congress nonetheless. I'm just wild about Harry. The War Department was eliminated and a new Defense Department was created. The Secretaries of the Army, Navy, and Air Force were now subordinate to the new Secretary of Defense. The National Security Council was created to coordinate the Departments of State and Defense. And finally, a Central Intelligence Agency, a CIA, was established to monitor espionage activities around the globe. Many Americans have probably seen episodes of MASH, at least my generation, but few of us could really explain what caused the Korean War. Containment had not gone so well in Asia. When the Soviet Union entered the war against Japan, they sent troops into Japanese-occupied Korea. As American troops established a presence in the southern part of the Korean Peninsula, the Soviets began cutting roads and communications at the 38th parallel. Two separate governments were emerging as Korea began to resemble the divided Germany. 
Emperor of Korea, mountainous and forbidding, lies beneath a blanket of clouds as dirty weather hampers efforts of U.S. airmen to aid the defenders of South Korea against the communist invasion. Upon the recommendation of the U.N., elections were scheduled, but the North refused to participate. The South elected Sigmund Rhee as president, but the Soviet-backed North was ruled by Kim Il-sung. When the United States withdrew its forces from the peninsula, trouble began. As American fighters provide cover, the first American refugees from the Korean fighting arrive aboard the Norwegian ship Reinhold on Kyushu Island in western Japan. North Korean armed forces crossed the 38th parallel on June 25, 1950, and it only took two days for President Truman to commit the United States' military to defense of the southern portion of the peninsula. The commander of the UN forces was none other than Douglas MacArthur of World War II fame. He had an uphill battle to fight, however, as the North had overrun the entire peninsula, with the exception of the small Pusan perimeter in the south. MacArthur ordered an amphibious assault at Incheon on the western side of the peninsula on September 15th. Caught by surprise, the communist-backed northern forces reeled in retreat. American-led forces from Incheon and the Pusan perimeter quickly pushed the northern troops to the 38th parallel and kept going. The United States saw an opportunity to create a complete, indivisible democratic Korea and pushed the northern army up to the Yalu River, which borders China. And with anti-communism on the rise at home, Truman relished the idea of reuniting Korea. His hopes were dashed on the 27th of November, when over 400,000 Chinese soldiers flooded across the Yalu River. In 1949, Mao Zedong had established a communist dictatorship in China, the world's most populous nation. Not since Bataan have Americans been so badly outnumbered. But this is not Bataan. For despite the wreckage, despite early defeats, and despite the suffering, powerful help is on the way from the United States. In no time, American troops were once again forced below the 38th parallel. General MacArthur wanted to escalate the war. He sought to bomb the Chinese mainland and blockade their coasts. Truman, however, disagreed. He feared escalation of the conflict could lead to a third world war, especially if the now nuclear-armed Soviet Union lent assistance to China. Disgruntled, MacArthur took his case directly to the American people by openly criticizing Truman's approach Truman, being commander-in-chief, promptly fired him for his insubordination. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. Oh, soldiers never die, they just fade away. Meanwhile, the Korean War evolved into a stalemate, with the front line corresponding more or less to the 38th parallel. Ceasefire negotiations dragged on for two more years beyond Truman's presidency and into Eisenhower's presidency. Finally, on June 27, 1953, an armistice was signed at Panmunjom. North Korea remained a communist dictatorship, and South Korea remained under the control of Sigmund Rhee, a strong military man. Over 54,000 Americans were killed in the conflict, and the Korean conflict, the war, 
still rages on to this very day. And that concludes this episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Coming up in our next episode, we take a look at the social landscape of the 1950s in America. The post-war 1950s had acquired an idyllic luster. Reruns of 1950s TV shows such as Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best leave even today's viewers with an impression of unadulterated family bliss. The baby boomers look back nostalgically to these years that marked their early childhood experiences. But like the 1920s, not everything on the surface was as it seemed. I'm Mr. Nesosi, and I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me for this moment of learning. I look forward to welcoming you back right here next time. Thank you.